Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is one of the contemporary legends of creative. And by contemporary, PJ, I mean still pretty young, but been around and still performing at the very top, top, top uh, level. And that is you, and we're thrilled to have today. He is a, a founder, he's a chief creative officer, he's a creative chairman. He's an author, which is, I think, where we're going to start, my friend. And we recently reconnected and had a great lunch a couple months ago. And I'm thrilled to have a chance today to talk to the great PJ Pedetta. So welcome, PJ. It's a pleasure to be here. So not everybody in our industry takes the same approach that you did and have done to being an author. The latest is not your first Many people in our industry write books, how-to books, business advice books, and it's sort of uh, all cut from a similar cloth, all those types of books. Many, by the way, self-published, which I'm not sure really makes them books, but uh, some of them. Uh, that way, some with big-time publishers. You took a completely different approach, in particular to your latest, and really borrow on different passions of yours uh, to create something that's completely unique. So I'd love to start our conversation, not where we usually do PJ by going backwards, but I'd like to go to the present day and talk about uh, the upcoming novel, which is just so interesting. Well, not upcoming, but now out, uh, The Girl from Wudang, and start with that. Yeah, so it's, so this story combines like a, parts of my past, parts of the future. I'm like, I've been obsessed with, with technology my entire life and, and studying it. In the last 10 years, I've been kind of reading and, and uh, trying to understand better the, the impact of, of these idea of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And um, a few, but, but I have always done martial arts as well. So kind of combine those two things into, into one and decided to and build these, this story. There's a story about Kung Fu and artificial intelligence, which is a very unlikely combination, but it made it made a good story. I mean, we we like to call ourselves storytellers in the advertising business, right? And I always wonder, if, like, what what would happen if we try to tell stories that are not bound by by the guidelines and the limits and the intentions of our clients? Can we tell our own stories, the things that we just come up with? And so 10 years ago, I published my first book back in Brazil and kind of published three other books there as well. And then at some point, I feel like I'm, I've been here, I've been almost 20 years in, in America. It's time I, I give it a shot to try to, to come to the, the, the big market. And, and this is happening right now. And this is just launched. Very, very exciting. So that's two very unique subjects to put into one sandwich right? Kung Fu and NAI. Go us back to the moment when you had that, you know, boom moment when the idea came to you. All right. So there were different parts of this that suddenly I realized that I, I was thinking about what could be stories around artificial intelligence. So I had been going to all these MIT big events and try to stub, study it and talking to specialists in machine learning, try to understand that a little bit more. There was another part of me that was working on another story that is about Kung Fu and, and, and Taoism and the yin-yang and the balance and letting go of your, your plans and everything. And then there was one day that I remember very clearly on one of these MIT events, 
there was a, 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 a group of panelists talking about how the essence of machine learning and, and, and any, any system that learns from, their own, from its own experiences was that you need to give it a goal. So the basics of it is that you give the computer a goal and then you create a reward system that every time it gets close to the goal, it gets a little bit of, of uh, get a, a little reward, right? So machine learning works based on that. Establish a goal, rewards every time it gets closer. And that's when I realized that. So I'm studying one story that is all about the rewards, all about establishing a goal and pursuing that goal and trying to understand how you're getting, if you're getting close, closer to it, like a creature, a digital creature of sorts, but that has a goal as it's bound. On the other side of the other story that I was trying to work with, it was based on, on Taoism and, and Kung Fu and Taoism and this idea that you need to look for balance. And part of that balance, needs, you, you need to let go of your goals and let the universe take charge. And then I thought, all right, I have one story that's about letting go of your goals. Another story that is all about pursuing goals. I think those two stories need to be together. So I spent time trying to find how to combine them into one and how to build these characters that could get, uh, could coexist. And, and that's, that's what the story is. Ultimately, philosophically, that's what the story is about. What a, what a t- tremendous idea and thought process. Take us behind the curtain. You know, I, I do a lot of writing and, and uh, I've certainly toyed with the idea of, of trying to do something more ambitious, but I never have. Talk about that process. I got to think this is difficult and takes a lot of time. It does, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a Virgo. I like to organize. I'm very disorganized, but I like to organize my thoughts. So I took these very complicated process because I have a family. I have um, I do martial arts myself. I train very seriously. I have a company to run. I have a lot of things in my life and, and writing is one of them. So I had to take the, the writing process and, and the idea of building this big story and break into lots of, of um, lots of smaller, more manageable tasks. So I, I spend like about one year thinking about what the plot is and the main arch. And then I break into blocks of three months writing, two months thinking about something else. Then three months rewriting, two months. So in three months, I write one entire draft. Then I, in two months, I don't do, I, I forget about it. I'll go to um, I'll do other things. Then I go back three months rewriting. And during those months that I'm rewriting, uh, I'm, I don't watch TV, no entertainment. I don't see my friends. I don't use social media. Um, and, and that alone, those three things together, give me about three to four hours a day. That is the time that I need to write. So I, if I, as long as I manage that, I can, I can get that. But, but it takes me about 12 rounds of rewriting to get a book done. So it's been like six years writing and rewriting these beasts. Uh, amazing. And the process you went through for Gods of Both Worlds going back, which was a trilogy, also combining different subjects, in that case, fantasy, horror, and science fiction. Did that, was that that same process going back to that book almost 10 years ago? Yeah, that's, that's how the whole process began. If like, I need to find a way to write, I need to find the time to write, and I need to, to combine. I, I, that's when I realized that I like to, to, that I could do it, and that I like to mix esoterical, mystical themes and religious themes um, that, you know, my first books were related to 
um, African religions and technolo technological realities of today. When because I, I always felt like that those two worlds when they collapse and they clash, there there's something interesting that can come out of it that reveal a little bit more of our of of, of the point that we're living right now. So, all right, do we how do we look at forward and backward at the same time to understand who we are? I, I, I love it. And uh, this is one that I will read. I will tell you most of these industry books by real and alleged experts I pass on. But yours, <laughs> I, I think I want to read, PJ. It'll be an honor. Let's, let's dial it back a little bit. I want to come back to the book and some of the themes that you talked about. And I love sort of that reconciliation of conflict, of pursuit of goals and dropping and leaving goals behind. Uh, but let's go back and, and talk about an agency where you spent some time, give or take 30 years ago, uh, DM9 DDB. You, you were very early uh, to the interactive world. Let's talk about, you know, going back to when you started there, give or take 1995. Let's talk about what interactive meant then, because it was a little different from what it means today. So it's the, the story of how I got into advertising in, at DM9, which at that point was, they were, we were like twice in a row, the agency of the year at Cannes, and it was like, it was a great place to be a great school. Um, right before there, I was a computer programmer working on a technology company. And one day my boss, that was my uncle as well, was kind of started to work when I was 13 years old. He, he came to me as like, hey, we, I just sold, I have, we're developing this software here for, um, for farmers that, that, that plant soy, soybeans here in Brazil. And, and we just, I just saw a sponsorship here. I don't know what to do with it. I know that it shouldn't, we shouldn't try to make it look as crisp as a, as a print ad because resolution of the computers are not that great. I know that it's not, it's not going to be as smooth and anim as an animation as you do on TV because computers cannot handle that. What could we do? And I looked at that and I'm like, oh, computers, you can play with it. So I, d I developed this little game for it. And that was the, the day that I realized that every time you, you, you take the, the media landscape, take a step forward, you need to rethink what advertising can be for that. So the same way that at some point, Someone felt like, all right, there's this TV thing coming up. So I cannot just put one image there. So it needs to look like a print ad that moves. What kind of stories can I tell with moving images? At that point with the interactive world, of like, oh, what kind of stories can we tell in the, in, with the, within a device that responds to you? And which is, I think is also creates another interesting question that is what kind of stories can we tell now? in a world where machines learn. What is an idea that learn, that, that learns and reacts to, to everyone that is interacting with it? And I think that there are glimpses of it happening everywhere, but the future is gonna be very exciting. I remember the, at, at that time at DM9, having discussions with people at the agency and with people all, all over the world, the pioneers at that time, trying to understand what interactive, interactive advertising was because it would be different. And I think, and I remember the, the electricity in the room when we talked about it, because no one knew. We just knew that it was going to be big. We felt that it was going to be big. I have the exact same feeling right now because things are going to change quite dramatically. And, 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 and 
I know that there's a generation of people here. I'm kind of on the, 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 the end of it and trying to find and organize this for the next generations. That's how I'm, I'm thinking about this. And But I know that there will be other me's right here, right now, kind of young and thinking, okay, this is, I'm going to build my future right now. This is the opportunity that I was looking for to be in the, the same level of, of expertise of the, that the, the, the biggest names in the industry are. That's that's a chance that you, you have to be if you're young. This is the t- the moment to get into advertising. A g- great story. So you said at the top, DM9 Agency of the Year, highly decorated. And it seems like overall, Brazilians over-index in creative industry. Not just within our industry and that relatively insular world of awards, because in my mind, sort of the same work wins a lot of them in a given year. I know Mm -hmm. you are on the board for many years of the one club and and the same work tends to be recognized from one show to another in any given year. But talk about the overall sort of punching above your weight, if you will. I know Brazil's a big country, but but in creative industry, you seem to really, really excel. I think it has to do with, you know, when you don't have a lot of resources to count on, you look at every opportunity that you have, like this may be the chance to to make it. And I think that if you are ambitious and they're not and and are used to not give being given the right all the, the proper resources, you 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 make yourself creative no matter what. It happens, right? So and I think that that's that's the that's what happens with with soccer players, with artists, with with a, in every creative field, because that's when well, you know you, you, I remember being arrived in the U.S. of like oh you have almost have too much money to do these things, too much time to do these things, and 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 that created a process that you end up using the, all that money and all that time no matter what. And it's like yeah, it, it could have been easier. All my friends that come from Brazil to, to America, they feel like it takes so, so much time to get things done here because they're hungry. They just want to get more things done because they're not, they're not sure that, that two years from now, three years from now, things are going to be as good. We grew up thinking that, all right, there could be a, a major crisis in, in a few months from now that can destroy everything. So we have to take, there's an opportunity in our hands. That's the one that we've got. And I think that, that forces your creativity out. So that lack of resource and urgency sounds yeah. like those are the two ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we have to do it. We may not have another choice. We may not have another chance. Uh, listen, uh, one of the reasons why I've always liked the live businesses at some point, the curtain's going to come up and you have to be ready. And I think that, you know, that has always served us well. You can, you know, fuck around for a pretty long time, but at some point, it's showtime. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's, I think that may be a good way to look at this for, for Brazilians and for anyone coming from a third world with lots of ups and downs in the economy and everything, work is live. For, you know, what you're doing is the performance. For a, a first world person that is, is used to a stable economy and everything, work the work you're doing is behind the curtains is preparation for what's going to happen once you're finished i like every day every minute for me is performance is not is not 
preparation for a performance. Everything is like this is this is it. This is the game. This is the the play. This is the performance. This is this is the show. I love it. I love it. So at a very young age, you become a founder of an agency. Talk about that journey from going to a very successful creative shop at DM9 to becoming a co-founder and uh, leading the creative department. I, I went to business school. I was a computer programmer, went to business school, and then, but I knew that I, I had a creative gene or, or, or sort. So I, I knew that I was going to be um, in, in the creative business. But I also, because I went to business school, I also knew that I, I was trained and I, I practiced, I was ready. I, I knew how to build, I, I wanted to build my own business. So I, as I worked at DM9, I was kind of learning from everyone and, and, and trying to, I actually worked in every department at the agency uh, because I was the interactive guy there. No one knew exactly where to put me. So I got fired from all the departments. It's like, yeah, you're cool, but you don't belong here. They, they fired me to the next department. And I had the opportunity that then to work in every single area until I finally landed on, on creative and found out this is my real turf, but I understood everything else. One day the, the, the founders of the agency sold it and offered me to, to go to a new business that they were, they were going to start and, and be the creative guy on, their, on that business. For like, no, no, I don't want to do it. Do this. Invest on an agency for me, a, a digital agency for me, and I, I can, and you can be my client. And they'd say, okay, let's do it. And then I started my my first agency in Brazil called Agencia Click, which six months later was became like the the most awarded digital shop in the world and everything, and kind of put a, put our name on the map and give us gave us a lot of of weight in the industry in terms of of all the discussions that were happening. And later, a few years later, opened the doors for me to to come to America when I thought it was time for me to go, which led me to a job. If like I want to get a job first, because I I'm I don't want to be that pretentious to start in a new new world with that where I don't have the local muscle. So I need to find a partner. I need to understand how business operates. I understand need to understand the culture. So I spent three years at AKQA here. That's where I met Andrew Odell, my partner. You know, at, at Perodel today, and then we decided to to build our own thing again. So there are certain shops over the last twenty years that have had moments in time where they really captured the imagination. You know, I remember way back when when Crispin Porter Bogusky. You know, they were the agency at a, at a moment in time, and uh, Chuck remains a dear friend today. Uh, AKQA is an agency that had that designation. Talk about what made that place so special uh, and why we remember it. It's obviously still around today, but there was certainly a moment back when you were there in the early 2000s when things were really cooking over there. I think it was, it was you know, AKQA was, is a combination of, of um, AK, an agency called AKQA founded London, and, and um, a group called Citroen Hellman Better Carey founded in San Francisco. They merged and, and they like, oh, let's, let's build something special here. And once they decided to do it, they had two incredible creatives in London. Um, uh, they were running the, 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 the shop in London and they hired a, a group of, of creatives to run San Francisco and New York here. And, and that's when I joined. And I think that the combination of having all these sudden arrival of incredible creatives. Some of the, I remember looking at that from the top 
the top 10 most awarded creatives in the digital space around the world, uh, five of us were at, at AKQA at that time, five out of 10. So the combination of these incredible people, they were all working together. And, and if like they were, we had been competitors for a while, and all of a sudden we were in the same room. It was, it was electric. It was very fascinating, you know, and, and it was, there was a moment of extreme ambition but in but also naivete. It's like, yeah, we can do it. We don't have a proper plan. We don't know exactly how we're gonna do it, but we believe on each other's talent. We believe that we can we can go there and, and have it done. And and we did. Sometimes a little na- naivete goes a long way. You know, not knowing what you don't know or what you can't do can be a real asset. Talk about the cultural difference for you and the evolution going from that can do has to be done today. Uh, in Brazil to a little a little bit more deliberate, if you will, style here in America and talk about the evolution of business culture and how you did adapting personally to living in America. The, the deliberate is a very, very good word. It's like I, I remember coming here for like, oh, it's, it's very pretentious. So I, I got here and at that time, Brazil was considered the powerhouse on the digital space we're like i remember my agency once kind of won more awards than than england and germany together all the, the entire country so I like i was feeling the king of the world so i arrived here and i remember seeing someone kind of walking in for like yeah you're very good while in brazil let's see how you do it here on the on the the major league and if i was offended like okay let me show show you americans how we do in brazil and i try to do that and it was a disaster because the whole business world here doesn't operate under the same rules and circumstances and cultural cues. And so I could not do it. And even when I could execute, it didn't work because the other parts around it didn't work. So I decided, you know what, it's time to take a step forward and mature and become an American. So I decided to operate like an American. It was even worse. <laughs> I'm, I'm a horrible American. Oh, my right. Goodness. So then I decided there was one day that my partner was Ray Namoto from Iron Co. Now, uh, Japanese, uh, born and raised in Japan. And we're kind of a Brazilian and Japanese in an agency in San Francisco. And we're, we're in a meeting and I told the Brazilian joke and he laughed and felt like everyone knows that joke. But not, not me. And he told another joke from Japan and we all laughed. And like, oh, so that's what's happening here. So my value coming to this country is not that I'm, I'm Brazilian. Is that I'm a foreigner? Is that I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm an outsider? And I realized how important being an outsider is in general, which led me later to feel like you know what? It's time to build an, an agency, and I'm going to bank on the outsiderness of my personality, not necessarily the the national outsiderness, but the 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 discipline outsiderness. At that time, there was a there was a, a generation of agencies being born. They, they called hybrid agencies that were. Droga and 72 and Sunny and Anomaly. They're all saying, oh, we can do advertising and digital together. And I looked at that and I'm like, but if that's true, that one agency can do both, why are all of them coming from TV background saying that they can do digital as well? That's not a, a new generation. That's a coup. If that generation needs is going to get legitimacy, at least one agency in this group needs to be coming from the digital space. There was nobody. So I raised my hands. I'm going to do it. And everyone around me felt like, oh, it's not going to work. It works the other way around. If you, if you do advertising and you want to embrace 
uh, you want to incorporate digital, it's going to be okay. The other way, it doesn't work. I'm, like, ah, I'm not sure. I think it, I can do it. It was a little bit of the naivete probably as well. Went there and did it and it worked. So I think it, it, it helped establish that legitimacy for for the, the entire generation of agents. Not that I established that myself, but it's the fact that there was one agency coming from that side kind of brought others as well. And I think as a generation, we we actually made a, a dent into the, the the course of of the industry. Well, that you were native of the modern world as it has become is very different versus someone who's native from the evolution of a world that was once something very different. So uh, I, I like that juxtaposition. Talk about Andrew and your partnership with him and that decision, again, going back to another sort of boom moment when Pereira Odell was born. So we, Andrew and I, we, when we met, we started one week apart at AK Kuwait. And so I remember being the first meeting, kind of full staff meeting, and I looked at him and he looked at me and we absolutely hated each other. We looked at each other like, that's the person who's going to give me trouble. That's the person who's going to try to tell me what to do. But, you know, I was ECD. He was in charge of new business. We had to work together. And then, when we re- then suddenly we realized that we actually made a great team. He could sell things that I was doing better than I could. And I could give him things that he could sell better than, than others uh, because of our personal style. So we thought, all right, that's, that's cool. That we should be doing more things together. He also had his own agency before. And as I was at AKQA, my agency that I still had shares in Brazil, Agency Click, got sold to, to Dentsu, who also bought his agency a, a, a kind of years earlier. So I feel like, oh, we just both sold our agencies to the same group. Maybe we should do something together someday. And it was a joke. You know, when you do that in the day, it's like, yeah, it's a joke. And then it becomes a joke with a wink. And then you stop smiling. And then you become, a, you want to do it? Yeah, want to do it? And then when we realized what we were doing. And we left our jobs when the world was great. We got the investments and everything. And we resigned in December and then set everything up to start in, in April. And during that time, the world collapsed and there was like the recession hit and, and but we had money, we didn't have our jobs anymore. So we it kind of, we went back to that sense of urgency and, and okay, we're performance, performing. We have to, we don't have another choice. We either make it happen or we are screwed. So I think that, that Brazilian spirit kind of helped at that point. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, that's a nice outcome for the agency that you founded, being acquired by Denso. I guess it was Isobar. Yeah, exactly. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, at that time it was Isobar, and and it was. It was. It, it gave me a, some some space to do the agency, do kind of build Perodel in the way I, I thought it, w- it should be, like with all the responsibility from a financial standpoint, and also with the the, the aggressive creative work that that allowed us to to build towards the future now for, for the next week. And early on, Pereira Odell distinguished itself and joined the pantheon of agencies, some of which we touched on before, shops like AKQA and uh, Crispin Porter that had a magical moment. Uh, you distinguished yourself early going into the entertainment world, first shop of your kind to win an Emmy, uh, up against a more traditional set of competitors. 
and you became an expert and ultimately with my dear friend our dear friend uh sam glenn became uh the editor and co-author of a great book on the art of branded entertainment talk about that part of Pereira odell and that part of you so i when i started to work in the digital space my partner at urgency click told me something that that's tough got stuck in my head that my entire life uh, since, since then said that the, the biggest difference between what we do in the digital space and what advertising people do on their own space is not that ours is interactive is that we actually manage our own audience. We have the discipline of TV programmers of channels that we have to worry about, you know, is it working or not? Are we, do we have audience to our own content and feel like, oh, that's that's interesting. So we are in between advertising and 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 the the stations where we buy ads on, and like, that's that's a cool perception. And I I I always kind of kept that in mind. Later at AKQA, we we were the 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 project that got Andrew and I together, and and a bunch of us at AK at, at AKQA ends up kind of the, who worked on that. The entire team working on this project in particular ends up being the core of a parallel. Uh, became was a um, we got a brief from from um, Red Bull to do what they call the back of the can to promote the back of the can the functional benefits and how it makes you alert and aware and and focus and we we did a feature film called uh, Unflinching Triumph we sold them and that's what the, I told I gave Andrew a trailer for that and it's like oh great we're gonna do a trailer for a fake movie about a fake sport that was it was a movie about uh, the national champion of stare down. It's as silly as it gets. And it's like, I, I can do it. It's a fake sport, a fake movie about that fake sport, a trailer for a fake movie. It's like, all, all right, almost right, except that I want to make the film. And so, like, oh, really? Okay. He went there, took the trailer, went to Red Bull, sold and made the entire film. It's like, oh, that's when we realized, okay, we have to do more of this. And later we we decided, that, okay, we, we created this agency that, that had parts of advertising parts of digital and an ambition in the entertainment because we knew that we had to manage our own audience and and create um create a, the, the the bring the crowd to watch what we were creating uh, i love that story there was something a few years ago it was a little shop out of california and they came up with this whole fake narrative and did a proper film around the real godfather of advertising cornelius trunchpole did you see that yes yeah, I thought, yeah. I, I thought actually, that was so clever. It was. I actually hired the guy who 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 did that. So I was a is a copywriter in London. I just brought him, and he's working in the U.S. now. I I I I love that. So talk about the book that you and Sam and so many others collaborated on, because it really has become sort of the Harvard Business School tutorial for the modern world of branded entertainment. So I I was invited by Ken to be the president of the jury of the entertainment category, I think it was his third year, because I won a, a Grand Prix in one year, the Emmy and everything. So the next year, they invited me to, to preside the jury. And we got there for like, oh, there's these group people from media, from creative agencies, from talent agencies, from clients, from everywhere. And the discussions were enlightening. It was, they were really incredible. I learned so much from there that in the end, it's like, we cannot just let that go. I have never seen anywhere with the level and diversity of these of point of view that we are discussing. We need to register that on paper. So I called after we finished judging, I called all the judges, but 
do you want to put your perspective on paper? We can, I can organize this and give you a theme. They have a, like a, a, an area that is not very difficult for you because you know what you're talking about. We put it together and we put it and we turn it into a book and say, yeah, let's do it. And in three months, we, we got it done, found a publisher and, and got it out in the world. Great stuff. Uh, and just a, such a terrific read. So many places to go with you. We can't cover everything, PJ. We're going to have to do this as a two-parter. But you've been very philanthropic uh, with your time and uh, with the agency's time and have been very active over a long period of time with the Ad Council. Uh, I, I uh, love the Ad Council. Our very first year in 2004, we celebrated what was then 60 years of the Ad Council uh, with an exhibit in Grand Central Terminal, uh, Vanderbilt Hall, and that was when Peggy Conlin, but many of the same people, Paula, Jessica, so many of the same team there now working under Lisa. Talk about the work that you've done there with the Ad Council, so important and uh, uh, really, really the, the very best of who we are as an industry in so many ways. And I, I, I love, I think that the Ad Council is probably my favorite parts of my days because that's when it can use our superpowers if, if they are super in any shape or form, but it's, it can use our power for good. It's our Avengers moment. I feel like, all right, we work for, for brands to sell products, to, to keep people's jobs and, and, and push the economy forwards and everything. There are all lots of things. And now all brands have a purpose element, all great things that we can do. But when you work with the Ad Council, it's just purely, it's everything in reverse. Every, it's pure cause and pure good. And we have all the power of the entire industry behind, which is great. So I, my work there has two, two parts. One is looking at campaigns that are being done by other agencies and trying to be, to, to, to help um, facilitate the, the best work to get out there. Kind of look at the data, look at the creative work and, and be uh, a third element that helps the creative sell its best ideas and have the data people get to the creatives in the best possible way. But also there's part of that that I do as an agency. I'm one of those agencies kind of that takes some campaigns. We have done campaigns for uh, on the immigration field. We did the, the vaccination campaign that is the biggest um, nonprofit campaign, the biggest um, public service uh, campaign ever done in this country was the the vaccination campaign uh, that we did uh, that we did with the, the council. That was kind of a very fascinating. Now looking back, is fascinating. At that time, it was scary because we had a, a very complicated scientific problem that scientists resolved. We had then we had a very complicated logistical problem that the logistics people resolved. And then when you felt like, okay, now we just need to put out in the world and just get people are going to get vaccinated and it's going to be over. And we realized that we had an equally as complicated marketing problem that because the, the idea of a vaccine had been extremely politicized and they and people didn't want to do it. And so I, I had to find ways to, to get it, um, to get people to, to change their mind or to, con to, to consider it. And it all came to to respecting their fear and respecting their reluctance. And I think a lot of the work that has been done on the, on the public service announcements, they, they, they come from a, a posture of, I'm better than you, let me tell you little person what to do. 
And with that, we didn't have time for that with, with vaccination. We had to go and meet people where they were for like, okay, I understand that you're afraid. I understand that this is all new for all of us and there are risks. And we understand, we understand why you're not, you're considering not taking, but would you consider listening to us? And I think that that, that humble aspect of the campaign, the humble aspect of the strategy uh, allowed us to, to get the entire industry, publishers, tech companies, brands, and okay, it gave everyone a strategy and a, a voice that we could walk independently, we could execute independently, but as a group and eventually um, got us into a level of, of vaccination that, that, that made everything much better and, and got us out of the, 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 the deepest part of the problem. And you mentioned working on another issue, immigration. Um, give us your perspective, PJ, as someone who came to this country, who's embraced America, who now calls America home, on the marketing and communications, if you will, challenge. If, this, if your client now is the current immigration, let's call it a crisis, uh, because, uh, you know, sometimes I can't quite tell if things are as bad as they seem to be, or it's just the amplification. Uh, but mm -hmm. clearly it seems like in places like New York and San Francisco and other major cities, we got a real challenge on our hands and you've got democratic mayor and governor in the case of New York, blaming a democratic president. You've got a democratic president blaming a democratic mayor and governor. So it seems like there's a little bit of chaos here in terms of how we're handling this challenge. The flip side, of course, is America was built by immigration. And without mm -hmm. people like yourself in the modern era who have come, or people way back when, like my grandfather, Ben Goralski, who came from Russia through Ellis Island, you know, one of 15 million people that came through Ellis Island. America was built by immigration. That seems to have gotten lost in this whole conversation. Yeah, it, it is It is a mess, and the mess comes through the polarization of an issue that shouldn't be Political. I understand that there, it has to do with, with, you know, once once you get to the the kitchen table of a family that is that doesn't that kind of no one has a job because the factory that employed half of the 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 the, the, the town just closed and now we have to you feel like okay that immigrant is fighting for my job. It's in the end of the day it all comes to that, but the the politicization of the discourse makes pits the the the, the unemployed American against the 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 immigrants when they're not really going for the same positions and there's it's so much more complex and nuanced than that but the the public discourse and the discussion right now doesn't allow for nuance so we need to find ways to again understand the pain that people who are against it are going through and respect that pain instead of talking trying to talk down to them and for like, okay, let's let's have a conversation here. As an immigrant, I, I feel for, you know, because in my country, in Brazil, there are people without jobs as well. I, I, I know the, the, the problem, I know the crisis, I know the feeling, I know the fear that comes with all this. And we cannot just disregard for like, oh, those are just people who don't, they're, they're dumb people who don't like this, or they, they have an agenda. It's, no, no, they're actually trying to find a way to keep food on the table. That is how the whole thing needs to start. If we understand the people in the beginning, this is how I'm looking at this. Is we need to talk to the people at the kitchen table 
people who are afraid, people who are uh, concerned, and 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 talk to them in 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 very as honestly as we can. Because if we let the institutions, if we let the the the, the government, whoever is in the government, if we let the press, whoever is in the press talk and be the voice that inform them, they're going to come with an agenda that, that is not the agenda they're trying, not the discussion they're trying to have. And and I think if we can bypass the the, the big systems, we can find the solution. I, I still have hope that we can, we can get to a much better place where, where we all look for a better, brighter future together. Yeah, I sure hope you're right. And, and I think that point about you know, misunderstanding and that they don't want those jobs. You're not looking for the same jobs. You know, in the UK, Brexit was a colossal mistake, but now here they are. And, you know, the irony is that a lot of the false fears that were created uh, around, you know, their, you know, your jobs and, and it's taking away jobs from English, you know, that want those jobs with all the immigration there, the racism was not racial in the same way it is here. It was, against the Eastern Europeans, you know, the Poles and the Ukrainians and the Romanians and the Hungarians. And those are the people that want those jobs in industries like hospitality in particular, and or, or, the, or the ones who drove all the trucks or lorries, as they call them in the UK. Uh, and at one point, they were like 100,000 short of truck drivers in the UK. And people, you know, they can't get food on shelves because they don't have people to drive the trucks to bring them there. Uh, and the English didn't want those jobs. So, so much of this is, uh, uh, you know, off a false narrative. And, and I hope you're right that we can see ourselves, you know, to a new way forward. Yeah, um, I, I hope so. And there, there, there are jobs in technology. There's jobs. It's like there are jobs everywhere. They need people that know how to do those things. Because from economic, from economic standpoint, we need the specialists. We need the best ones. We need people who are hungry, people who want to work hard and do these things that are available. We we need people, and and I think that is um, that is a, a, an important part of the culture and the the way the fabric of the economy here. And I hope that we can can we can figure this out soon uh, sooner rather than later. I sure do too. So let's talk about uh, where we are today, PJ. You just had a a big age milestone uh, joining the Fifty Club. Uh, yeah. You still are creative chair of Pereira Odell, and also now have your own sort of PJ, if you will, model for a holding company that's a little more agile, a little more nimble, uh, talking about service plan, of course. Talk about yeah. that mix and how you're navigating sort of what you've been doing for so many years and what you are doing now as part of a, a bigger, albeit more nimble ship. Yeah, yeah. I think that it all comes to the, the, the paradox of scale for me. You know, scale makes advertising better and scale makes advertising worse you know it, if you're too small you don't have enough chances at bat you don't have enough structure to deliver but once you get too big then you get too slow you get too bureaucratic you get people fighting for pnls more than they're fighting for for client success so you need to find that balance so when we Started Pro, that was an independent shop, fiercely independent and doing our things. At some point, I felt like we need more scale. We need to grow to 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 do to fulfill the ambitions that we have. But we don't want to to link and to get kind of stuck into the 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 mud of the giant conglomerates. So we ended up kind of meeting during the middle of the pandemic. We we 
had a meeting, like an informal meeting with the, the guy from, from service plan. We, there was, it was supposed to be like a 20 minute conversation that become a two hour long chat. They're like, you know what? It's so, we, we match culturally so close. Maybe, maybe we should do something together and decided to architect it. And then eventually uh, earlier this year, we, we, we founded was what, what we call service plan Americas that has all the structure of 5,000 people that are, that service plan has around the world and all the specialties and all the, the, the presence, the global presence, but, but they missed a strong uh, lag in the U S so they couldn't, they were worldwide, but they couldn't call themselves global because they were not strong in the U S we had a global perspective, but we couldn't call ourselves global because we didn't have any, any presence elsewhere. So for like, we got together and for like, now we have it, but now let's start to go implement phase two of this plan. That is let's bring the other parts of service plan and other parts of America to this equation. So we brought media plus that is one of the largest uh, media companies in the world to operate here. We took service um, planet that is one of the biggest digital shops in Europe uh, and in the world to, to, to start an operation here in America. We took LNC, that is one of the hottest independent shops in the world, based here in New York. And probably let's incorporate, bring them to the, the fold as well so they can have a global presence because they're people with a natural global mindset anyway. So these immigrants, again, immigrants from Peru live, that lived in, in Asia, in Europe, now in New York, and they, they think like the world thinks. It's like, okay, put the power of the world behind them, they can do way more. So kind of finding ways to leverage scale without um, constraining our movement was the, the vision and the, 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 the aim for all this, this ambition. I, I, I love it. Tell me, is it harder or easier? I'm going to guess easier for you to stay motivated and excited about what you're doing today. Not to suggest it's easy, but I guess I sense that your creative flame still burns just as high and as brightly today as it did going back to those days with Andrew and Ray and a real all-star team at AKQA going all the way back. I think that motivation is something, it's is personal, it's not, it doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside. So you, you need to find what is the thing that you want to keep chasing. What is that dream they still want to build? And for me, if I have something that I'm trying to build, I'm a builder. If there's something worth building, I'm motivated. If I if I stay there for, okay, I, I got paroled to the point that I wanted. I don't want to grow anymore. I don't want to do anything anymore. Then I will be demotivated. Now I feel like, all right, there's so many opportunities to grow and to achieve and to build that it's like I, I, have, I haven't been demotivated uh, and that excited about my career, my job in in a long, long time. Well, I, I can't tell you what a joy this was. I really liked our lunch. Our paths have crossed over the years and we have many mutual friends, but it wasn't until you had kindly reached out and we sat down for a couple hours that we got a chance to really uh, know each other a little bit. And I'm thrilled to have you here on, on Great Minds. Uh, and it's a great, great story, PJ. And uh, I think this is just the beginning for you and me. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I think that what, what you do throughout your entire career and finding ways to bring the, the right people together to, to not only value the industry, but also help the industry ha play a bigger role in, in this world is very critical. So I think we, we all owe you a lot as well.
Well, we're, we're doing our very best to, to make a difference. And I appreciate you saying that. It's very kind. So thanks, PJ. Loved having you. Thank you.